0: for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So my guest today is Jacob Soboroff, and that's a name I'm sure you've heard in the past few months because he was one of the few reporters down on the border who helped break open the story about the Trump administration's vile policy to separate migrant parents and children. Jacob is a correspondent for MSNBC and NBC News, and on the network he specializes in border issues. So he has been in the room with Christian Nielsen and other Trump officials who instituted these policies. He's been down to the border on both sides, Mexico, Texas, and so on. And he was one of the first people inside these facilities where young children had been torn from their parents' arms and essentially placed into prisons. So Jacob is going to join me today to talk about what's going to happen to the kids who still have not been reunited with their parents, and there are lots of them, why the Trump administration regrets its executive order to roll back this ridiculous, awful policy. Yes, believe it or not, they actually regret what they did, not the bad part, but the stopping of it, and and what the Trump administration and immigrant lunatic Stephen Miller are planning next that could be so much worse than what they did a couple of months ago. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for coming by. You're not at the border today. You're not... I'm home. You're home for for a little while. Uh, Okay, so let's just jump right in. Uh, This is... We're in immigration land still. Uh, How did you get into the story, first of all? Let's just start there, and then we can kind of get to what's going on and how completely screwed up
2: this whole thing is. I I mean, so I grew up here in L.A. I was always interested in immigration and um, how... um, The life we live here, the life I lived growing up here in L.A. um, sort of uh, came to be, how everything we see around us every day um, comes together. And so before I was ever at MSNBC or NBC, I was interested in immigration. I worked at Pivot, which was a company, uh, a TV network that was run by participant media, and I did a couple stories for a TV show I was working on there about immigration during the Obama administration, actually, about how Obama deported more um, undocumented immigrants Uh, than anybody, any other president ever. Um, And so when I got to MSNBC, they were interested in me sort of continuing to do that type of reporting. And so after Trump got uh, elected, um, the first thing that we pitched was uh, a story about what will deportations look like in Donald Trump's America. Uh, And sort of the pitch was, you don't have to wait to find out, we already know. And so in... um, I guess the end of 2016 or early 2017, we went down to Tijuana and we um, did a story about uh, how down there you can find people that grew up and lived their entire lives in the United States, speak perfect English, actually better than Spanish, um, and uh, have been, you know, kicked out had been kicked out under the Obama administration. So that was, I think, that was the first immigration story that I did for NBC or MSNBC, and it was long before the zero tolerance stuff, and it was even before Donald Trump was in office. And then we sort of continued on from there. So
1: so people say this that that Obama was really tough on immigration. he was he as tough as Trump or was he were there were there ethical standards that he adhered to? Of course, we know Trump has not.
2: Well, he certainly didn't have any kind of zero tolerance family separation policy, but what they did have to do um, when there was a um, crisis of young, undocumented, um, unaccompanied minors in 2014, again in 2016, was put into place, these facilities um, that we saw Trump put children in um, over the course of the last couple of months. So when I went in and I saw these children sitting in cages on the floor in McAllen, Texas, at this processing center, Ursula, um, the fact that the kids were in there by themselves, uh, young kids, little kids, having been separated from their parents was new, for sure. I mean, and that's a Donald Trump policy, but the facility itself, the idea that we cage immigrants, uh, cage migrants that come into the country is not new, and it happened under the Obama administration, um, and deterrence isn't a new policy either. The idea of deterring people was a Bill Clinton-era uh, era policy. So when you—OK, okay, so let's get to this this moment when
1: you go down to, yeah. to the border and you go into these facilities. First of all, how did you— uh, how did you find out about the facilities? And um, and second of all, well, tell us how you actually got in. It's not like you knock on the door and they're like, hey, come on in. You're an MSNBC I, yeah. reporter. So
2: um, well, a couple things. One is Jeff Merkley, the senator from Oregon, had tried to go down to this center, Casa Padre in Brownsville, and they didn't let him in. Um, and he knew that there were separated children in there. And I think it was on Chris Hayes. I think that's where I first saw it, but he streamed it live on Facebook and I, I had heard about that um, facility. If, I, if Just to back up, For the four months before this moment, I had been working on a special for Dateline about immigration in Trump's America. What's the reality of life like on the southern border? Not what is it like, um, what's Donald Trump's version of the border like? Or what is it like when you hear about the border coming out of Washington? But what is life really like? Um, And so for months, we've been working on this project about the border. And so when Merkley went in there, a contact of mine, a source of mine uh, in the Trump administration called me and said, hey, look, I think we're going to let some— journalists into that facility. It's called Casa Padre um, in Brownsville. So you guys can get a look at it. And you guys can sort of characterize what he didn't get to see because, um, you know, he certainly got a lot of media attention for it. And so they did. They invited us down. They, yeah. But wait, what? what is the... Did they think that you were going to go in there and be like,
1: oh, it's so nice and lovely. It's like a five-star hotel.
2: Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I, I think that that is what they thought. That's insane. And I do want to say, so that facility... Is and there? This is the one that's in a former Walmart in Brownsville. There's 1,500 at the time. There were 1,500 boys between I think 10 and 17 in there. They're locked inside for 22 hours a day. Or now they take issue with the term locked, but they were inside for 22 hours a day and had two hours a day of recreation time um, outside. Uh, and by the way, some of the stories that we see today were foreshadowed during that tour. There were phones for sexual assaults that happened inside a facility like that, and now we 're hearing about sexual assaults in facilities like um, that Southwest Key runs elsewhere um, and uh, yeah they want us to, they want us to go in and say look it 's not that bad And the reality is, in that facility, there are no cages you know I mean that is a it is a dormitory style environment I saw kids doing. Tai Chi, you know, you see kids playing video games. They were watching Moana in the former loading dock of the Walmart that was converted into a movie theater. It's not, uh, they're not locked in cages, but they certainly, what I I said at the time was they're incarcerated. I've been in jails and and prisons and these, the kids are incarcerated there. I guess they might be able to walk out if they want to, um, according to Southwest Key. Um, but these are unaccompanied migrant kids that are brought to the U S and are, in these facilities, all day long.
1: So when you when you're walking through, are you do you feel are you feeling sad for them? Like, what's the emotion? Like the one that I think that we that gets that gets missed by everyone in, in the conversation of these uh, of what's going on is that you you don't get to talk about the emotion that you feel as a reporter, yeah. and also like what the emotion that appears to be on these kids. Like, what are you feeling? You have a two and a half year old kid. Yeah. What are you what's going through your mind?
2: Well, in that facility. Um, you know so keep in mind this is the beginning of the real public conversation about family separations chris had reported on it you know months before julia ainsley a colleague of mine got samantha b gets yeah, credit exactly samantha b for sure uh, julia ainsley a colleague of mine had gotten john kelly on the record i think for the first time about this over a year before we all got in there but this was the first time we like anybody really saw what was going on inside these facilities where the separated kids were and it was just mind blowing it's it's mind blowing because the United States runs a network of a hundred so-called shelters for unaccompanied minors that, again, predates the Trump administration. Tens of, or I think, eleven thousand kids are scattered throughout the United States um, that have come here by themselves, and they're in these type of conditions where they're essentially waiting to find out what the next steps are in their lives. And what made me the saddest uh, is that. The reason this place was overcrowded and that there were five beds to a room instead of four and that there were variances for overcrowding from the state, not just in this facility, but in many others, was because many of these kids, an increasing number of these kids, were separated from their parents. And we later found out 1,100 of them were separated from their parents in that very Border Patrol sector. So in that facility in particular, um, I was more shocked than anything to, to get my own eyes on, holy shit, this happens in the United States, and this is how it goes down. But where I became really sickened, um, like as a father, and I'm last night actually, no joke, I had my first kind of like nightmare about Mm. this whole ordeal, and I woke up this morning um, just thinking about what it must be like to have your baby taken away from you. I have a, you know, you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I have a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. It's horrifying. It's incomprehensible. Yeah, it's horrifying. And what made me sick, and so, you know, and I started to sort of describe it that way, it was sickening, was to see the young kids in the processing center in McAllen, Texas, which is, I I sort of did this whole thing in reverse. I saw the shelter second, first rather, and I saw the processing center second. And I saw it on Father's Day, actually. I missed my Father's Day to go there and to see these kids. And what I saw, I will never forget, it is um, young boys uh, sitting on the floor, being watched over by a guard in a watchtower with the Mylar blankets. Um, Those are the silver foil blankets. Yeah, like you get in a marathon or whatever. Um, And they're being watched over by four social workers for hundreds of kids. And the guards were telling me they're overwhelmed. And um, it's ostensibly like a play area. They're in what's supposed to be a play area. And how old are these kids? Little kids. I mean, as young as infants, right? I mean, and that's... This is when the Border Patrol is telling me things like, we don't change diapers, and that's why those social workers are here. Um, and when you're in there, it's all kind of happening so fast. You're taking notes. You're looking around. Um, but, you, you know, you go outside and you feel sick. And then the details start to fill in. Like parents are given a piece of paper that say, hey, if you're separated, here's how you figure it out. Um I mean, this.
1: What? So what? So what? Tell me, talk about what the the border patrol people do. They feel bad. I mean, I'm sure they have kids. Do
2: they? There are a lot of good people in the border patrol, actually. And I think that the border patrol as a um, organization deserves criticism. You know, for the policies and individual agents, like the one that kicked over the water bottle out in Arizona that was left by humanitarian group. You know, and that's not an isolated incident. I don't think. You know, deserve to be um, raked over the coals. You know. Yeah. But uh, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of good people in the Border Patrol. And in that facility in particular, they were telling me, look, man, this is overwhelming. Um, we're operators, you know, like we're cops on the street. We're beat people. And this is a policy that's set in Washington. And, uh, you know, what happened is Donald Trump and John Kelly and Kristen Nielsen um, and Stephen Miller— um, They put into place this policy as a deterrent to say more people will stop coming if we scare the shit out of people from coming in the first place. And it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. But isn't this complete – I mean this
1: is the thing that – I've tried to have this conversation with people on the right who are totally supportive of this – and they're like, well, you shouldn't come – I mean I actually know someone who works in the government who is fully supportive of this. And and they said to me, well, laws are laws and you shouldn't come in and, uh, and don't come in in the first place uh, illegally. And my thing is like when you talk to these people – And I went to an event a couple of days ago where we actually met someone who had come across the border and spent 10 months, a kid who had spent 10 months in uh, one of those immigration facilities. And the story was just harrowing of seeing his sister killed and hacked to death in, in El Salvador and spending two years walking and working to get here. And you think to yourself, there's no choice that this person has doesn't, I mean, you've interviewed Christian Nielsen and you've, you've spoken to people in the White House. Don't they understand that or do they just
2: not care? To them, this is about, um, you know, what they call illegal immigration, right? Uh, and they, and I th- hey, look, I think it's political is what it is, really. I mean, let's just be honest. This is about politics and they think this is good for them politically. Because um, the, the facts, there are no facts that back up anything that they're doing in this regard. And the arguments just don't make sense. The border is one of the safest places in the country. If you go to McAllen or San Diego or El Paso, you know, across the border is Reynosa, um, Juarez, and Tijuana, some of the most dangerous cities in Mexico, having its most dangerous year ever. But you look at the other side of the border, and these are some of the most safest communities uh, in America. MS 13, the Border Patrol Sector Chief in the Rio Grande Valley, in McAllen, told me that 183 or 187 out of 187,000 people that they apprehended were MS-13 members. So you make a policy by saying MS-13 is coming in, it's flooding the country, it's killing all these people. And by the way, there shouldn't be one MS-13 member that comes in across the border. But the idea of crafting a policy that separates children from their parents based on a statistic that is – I'm not good at math. What is it, 001 or 0.0001% of people that come across the border are MS-13 uh, members is ludicrous. It's just not based – um, in reality, same thing with the wall and the drugs. Drugs are pouring into the country. Guess what? Drugs aren't pouring in through places where there are no walls. They're coming in through legal ports of entry uh, by a uh, huge factor larger than anywhere else. So none of it, none of it is based in reality. It's all based in this. Well, Trump's.
1: Trump's. I mean, he said what? He he gave this bullshit uh, number that 67,000 uh, people have been murdered by uh, illegal immigrants, which is. A completely one thousand billion percent made up number by by tens of thousand. I mean, if you look at the statistics, you know, in in the United States, six over six percent, almost seven percent of Americans uh, have been arrested for uh, a, a felony type offense. Uh, Im- legal immigrants uh, and immigrants, it's it's less than two. Far less, yeah. It,
2: it's like I said to Kirsten Nielsen. Um, You know, violence is not pouring in, spillover violence is not happening, you know, and that's the justification for this, to keep out criminals and to keep out, you know, mayhem is essentially their argument coming through the southern border. And I pointed out to her in the DEA's national report, now not just this time, but over several reports, points out that spillover violence is not a significant trend of concern to the DEA at this time. And I said, so why are you pursuing this strategy? And she said, well, we see violence, you know, anecdotally. And I said, but that's not what the DEA says. It's not in the DEA report. And she said, well, I'll take a look at the DEA report. And you would think that the President of the United States would read his own DEA reports, but we know that he doesn't read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he and, reads Twitter. That's yeah, it. if he even does. And um, and so we're living in a world where policy is based on perception rather than reality. And it is, I've said this before, it rips apart the fabric of society, the best parts of America. This multicultural a uh, world that we have down on the border where like in a place like El Paso you know 85 percent or 80 percent of the residents are Latino and most have residents directly across the border and kids commute to school every day from from Juarez to El Paso hundreds of them it you know it's like Donald Trump didn't go down there and look in that facility that I did where the kids were being put into cages Kirsten Nielsen during the separation policy certainly wasn't down there um, nor was John Kelly nor was Melania when she went down there you know why don't they come and take a look with their own eyes? Nor was Ivanka Trump, who now says that family separation just was is so bad, you know, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, and she 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 said she was vehemently against it. Yes, exactly. Well, and it was a low point. It was a low point. Well, guess what? It's still going on. There's as of you and I talking today, I think there's five hundred and seventy two kids that are still separated out of the two thousand five hundred and fifty one sitting here in the United States after having been taken away from their parents. Four hundred and ten of the parents are have been deported already. And they'll never be reunited in the United States, that's for sure. The kids are going to have to find a way to get themselves um, deported, but they can't track down most of these parents. So there's like this ongoing court battle. And again, I guess my the, this is an extremely long answer to your question, but it it is all about policy-based and perception rather than reality, and it creates these sickening, um, inhuman conditions uh, that affect people's real lives.
1: When you interviewed uh, Kristen Nielsen, did you – did you get a sense that she felt any remorse or guilt or anything for the the actions that she is overseeing?
2: No, they never go there. You know, they is all... it that
1: they turn it? They did. I I just I have a really hard time kind of understanding how that works. Do they just? Do they not look at the pictures that we see? Do they? turn it off. Well, like, we well, know
2: that they look at the pictures. It, actually, this is the remarkable thing about this, is that Donald Trump, from I think that it was seven days from the time that I and the other nine journalists got into that shelter in Brownsville, then on Father's Day went to the McCallum facility, then to that Wednesday or Thursday when Donald Trump signed the executive order to stop family separations. And I actually think he was profoundly affected by the photographs and the images coming out, not because he was mortified like the rest of us, but I think because he realized that it looked horrible for him. You know, mm. I think that that was the calculation. I mean, that's just my perception from here. But, you know, he said it himself. He doesn't like it. Um, and when the images were coming out, it was only the images coming out that made him stop.
1: What percentage of you do you think, uh, based on your reporting, people you've spoken to at the White House and, and, and all of the interviews you've done and so on, of, of this was a... I want my wall so that it looks good for me in re-election, and I'm willing to do literally anything, including tearing families apart, to get it.
2: Their administration sources have told me—I haven't told this to anybody, actually—that they regret, um, they regret the executive order, um, and that they think if they would have kept going, they would have been close to having the leverage they needed to to getting the to getting a uh, you know immigration reform passed that included the wall. They regret
1: stopping doing it
2: feel like if they would have just kept going a little longer they would have had the leverage over the congress to get his wall passed change the um policies behind this and reform uh the Flores settlement this is complicated but it involves detaining children longer than 20 days down at the border um and trafficking protections for victims of uh, child trafficking so they feel like had they kept going um I don't want to say they. Officials um, feel like if they would have kept going, they could have got uh, Trump-style immigration legislation passed. They could have included things like the wall. And they, they, they
1: but wouldn't have. The, I mean, the uproar against it was was insane. When has it
2: ever stopped them before? I think this is the only. Th- I mean, I can't think this, of another.
1: But it wasn't this different, though? I mean, I, 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 mean, I think that there's been uproar against certain things, but it's, it, I mean, it was, it was. Intense. It was everyone. It was all they were talking about on every news channel, with the exception of Fox. It was it. It, it was a consistency. Even, you know? Fox was yeah, even Fox was talking about it. Yeah, uh, even Fox was talking about it. Although they were blaming it on Hillary it Clinton. Is a,
2: it is extraordinary to think about that. This is, I think, this is the one story that might have dislodged. And you know, we talk about it as a story. But again, let's remember: still, 572 kids that are sitting in U.S. government custody without their parents, and each has their own individual story. Um, it's the only thing that dislodged us from talking about Russia for a, week, for a week at a time. I mean, I think we talked about this every day, intensely, until he actually it got to this critical mass. And I think that the reason that that is actually, is because we all have, we all were kids, and we all have kids, and it just truly was a sickening and inhumane to watch our, the U.S. government
1: do this. It was, I think, the uh, one of the hardest things I think I've ever seen. Uh, take place within government and uh, in in years. I mean, I just can't What was the point,
2: you know? What was the point? It, these guys have hardliners in there that were, are probably well aware. I mentioned this earlier of the 1993 Clinton policy called Prevention Through Deterrence. And that was a official border patrol strategy that built the first set of walls and in the document said we know that by doing stricter enforcement, stepping up patrols, increasing technology, people are going to cross in more dangerous areas or they're not gonna come at all. And if they cross in more dangerous areas, you know, they're gonna put their lives at risk. Guess what? That policy didn't work. People didn't stop coming. People instead started dying at a much higher rate in more dangerous areas. And there's a precedent for understanding that deterrence doesn't do anything but make people try different stuff to get in. These are the, you referenced it. These are the most, some of the most desperate people in the world, you know? They're refugees from um, persecution and violence and sexual violence and domestic abuse and gang violence and government persecution. And they're not coming here because, like Donald Trump said, it's a walk in Central Park, you know? It's, this is one of the most dangerous journeys in the world that you can make through Mexico, through, through me- the Mexican cartels, in order to get here. It's just ludicrous to think that, um, that it would be anything but, and they know that deterrence doesn't work. So, so why try again?
1: Well, and also going back to that 1993 Clinton thing, that was actually based on people that were taking boats over from China uh, to get here and who were dying on, as a result. It had, it, it had little to do with the actual Mexican border and it had more to do with, with people that were coming in by sea.
2: Look, the, the reality is on the southern border, on the southwest border, it did affect migratory patterns. People used to run across hundreds at a time in San Diego. They built the walls and then they start to go through the desert. What it did do, though, is kill people. You know, people were dying because they crossed an Ajo. Some of these places I went to, because we reported out, as I mentioned, this Dateline Hour, Ajo, Arizona, Aravaca, Arizona, the falfurious checkpoint in South Texas. People started running from the Border Patrol instead of um, feeling like they could get through at a more leisurely, leisurely pace. So today, what they're trying to stop is asylum seekers, people that come and present for asylum between the ports of entry between the ports of entry and one of the things that I think will be a trend to watch very closely is will people now come and not declare asylum and are they going to run from the border patrol instead and take far more dangerous routes yet again and are we going to see now instead of primarily Mexican um, nationals dying and males are you going to see Central Americans and females and children that are dying because they're just trying to evade the border patrol entirely rather than show up and say hey I'm running from something I want it, I want you guys to take care of me. So, is
1: there something that, in your opinion, that can be done? I mean, should we be letting all these people in? Is there something? Is there another solution? I mean, we we've, we've clearly failed at every attempt to try to reform South America. We've also done a really shitty job of attempts at doing it, uh, often through the CIA and and and, right. and so on. Um, what is there a solution to this problem uh, that does not require tearing families apart? Uh, that's more humane. That's is there anything?
2: Well, look, if this is the United States and we don't want to have another um, St. Louis that turns a ship back towards the Holocaust, you know, I mean, that's there were comparisons to that made during all this. Um, let's figure out a way. And, I, and my understanding is at the end of the Obama administration, there were ways to sort of get a better handle on the migrants when they come here and are, um, are, are we're faced with surges like we were in 2014 and 2016. You know, you can put people on ankle monitors and have them check back in an immigration court. Donald Trump just says he doesn't want to hire the, the the manpower in order to handle these types of cases. But if you think about it, 11,000 kids is less than fit into the Staples Center here in L.A. I mean, we're not talking about millions of people. That's the other thing that he says. Millions of people are going to be flooding into the country. We're having open borders. We're talking about at any given time right now about 11,000, 10,000 unaccompanied minors. Those are manageable numbers. And these are kids that either have a reason to come in and stay here uh, or don't. And there's a way of adjudicating that process in just sort of a measured way. There's got to be. Um, it's not It's not something that should be overwhelming to the United States government. It's sort of the same argument that's played out in court between the ACLU and the administration about the kids they did separate. It's like, you're the US government. You can't figure out a way to reunite 2,551 yeah. kids. It's just, it's sort of ridiculous. And that's that's the posture that the judge has taken too. It's like, Just figure it out. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
1: So a couple of months ago, I ended up in the Midwest and I couldn't find anything even remotely delicious to eat. Everything was kind of saturated and salt and gross and fried and you name it. And so I ended up in a store and I found an RX bar. And so I tried it and it was so delicious and so healthy that I actually spent the next three days living off RX bars for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, These are the bars that they put egg whites in for extra protein. They have dates and nuts. Uh, There's no added sugars or chemicals or additives. These things are truly, truly delicious. They come in 14 different flavors, mango, pineapple, blueberry, maple, sea salt. My personal favorite, which I think I've had about 150 of, the chocolate sea salt. They have seasonal flavors. Right now they have debuted a new one, the RX Nut Butter, which is so delicious, And they are just a fantastic, fantastic bar. These are the guys that started this thing because they knew that back in 2013, all these protein bars you were eating were just completely full of shit. They were not real, and they had artificial ingredients and fillers and preservatives. They weren't real. And so uh, along comes the RX bar. These things are fantastic. They're amazing. They taste delicious. They fill you up. They're super healthy for you. And they are actually going to offer you a discount on RX bars. So if you go to rxbar.com slash hive and enter the promo code hive, you'll get 25% off your first order. You should totally do this because they're fantastic. Once again, rxbar.com slash hive. Enter the code hive and you will get 25% off your first order. Uh, they are the best to throw in a backpack to Eat on the plane, to have for breakfast, to eat before you're gonna work out, or while you're listening to this amazing podcast. Uh, really go try them today. Once again, rxbar.com slash hive, enter the promo code hive, and you will get twenty-five percent off. When you look at the, the the situation that happened and the executive order that was that was issued, um, we've had we've seen things under the Trump administration in the past where there have been judges that have stood in the way of policies, and eventually it's gone to the Supreme Court, and it's actually gone in favor of Trump. If the administration does regret the executive order, is there a world in which it they rescind it that they that they no, try to force a, a new legal path?
2: I don't think so. I mean, not for not for these kids. If anything, you know, the path they want to go down is challenging that Flores decision, which uh, involves holding children in detention for longer than 20 days, you know? Do you, are they able to indefinitely detain migrant families to cross the border as they wait out their immigration cases? And st- this is all about catch and release, which is a, like, such a derogatory way of saying when a family comes here and is apprehended by the Border Patrol, as they await their immigration case, they release them uh, under, you know, government supervision. and A lot of times that means they're wearing an ankle monitor. A lot of times that means they have to come and check back in. And the, and the knock on it is this is a huge loophole. Many families don't come check back in, and then they just disappear into the interior. And that does happen. So um, instead of saying, why don't we keep families locked up, again, as a deterrent, indefinitely, I mean, we're talking about stuff. It's just crazy. Locking up fam- families indefinitely in detention centers, private detention, many of them are private, detention, private prisons, instead of figuring out how to put an ankle monitor on somebody or incentivizing them to come check back in with... Their case officers or the government. Um, but that's not what the, the Trump administration wants. They don't want any undocumented people to be released into the interior of the United States um, because they want to scare them from coming here in the first place. But they're too scared from the place that they're in to not. The, the, the alternative for them is death. 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 Yeah. Death. I met a woman, I was up in Kingston, New York, uh, like a week and a half ago with a woman who was reunited from Honduras with her kids. Her name was Maria Gloria, is Maria Gloria. Her boys are Franklin, who's 11, and Byron, who's 7. And the kids were th- threatened with death threats. The, the mother was threatened with death threats. Um, it's the reason that they left their country, you know? They don't... You don't... You don't leave your country... Well, it's not only you don't leave your country. This is the part that... Like... In her family, by the way, you know? Yeah. She it, left her family behind. But you... I, I can't even walk
1: three blocks with my one-year-old. It's without him, like running off or screaming and crying imagine like walking across the fucking border with them It it's just the, but the part that I don't understand is like you said we have kids we understand what this is for the people that are supportive of this policy a lo- often uh, most of them are who are aven- evangelical Christians yeah That, it just, it doesn't compute in my mind.
2: I just, I don't even look at the, when I was doing a lot of campaign coverage for MSNBC and NBC, I would, would, I'd love to argue with people on social media about stuff. And now I just don't even, I do not engage with people that want to pick a fight about this because there is no logical argument that would make supporting this um, be moral or just or wise in any way. Because it doesn't work, as I said, again, it doesn't work to stop people from coming. All it does is traumatize for life little children. Yeah. Um, I
1: can't—I mean, my, my three-year-old, if I—you know, if I—sometimes if I leave to go to the store, he has a meltdown. You are talking comprehend. about dropping him off at school, yeah, right? I like, can't even comprehend what these kids have gone through.
2: So, so, I just don't know. You know, I don't—I don't—I can't imagine they're going to be out there talking about this, you know, in the midterm elections, at least as we got to put this back in. We shouldn't have—it just—there is no— there's nothing that will, I don't think, change the minds of the Americans across the board, across the political spectrum that would make anybody say, hey, why don't we take a second look at this? So when you
1: look at these, when you meet these kids and you see these kids uh, and these families, do they know, I'm assuming that, that they don't have much communication with the outside world, do they know that, they're, that the majority of Americans do not support this? They didn't when they were inside. And they just think that this is America.
2: Welcome to America. But when they've gotten out, it's just overwhelming. This one woman, we did a documentary with um, NBC Left Field, which is our, our documentary, uh, experimental documentary unit. And um, Maria Gloria went to that center in New York, in East Harlem, to pick up her boys. And when she showed up there, she got out of detention in McAllen. Uh, she got out of detention in McAllen. She went directly on a flight, I think a Southwest flight up to New York. She gets to East Harlem. She walks up to the door and it's just this incredible media circus outside you know and people are asking her about what does she think what has it been like she hasn't even gotten to see her kids yet and she breaks down in front of our our cameras and is just crying because there while they were while she was incarcerated for 45 days all of this stuff was playing out on the outside and you come outside to a world that i guess you know of support that you they it was just the exact opposite of what you had on the inside. Catholic Charities is there saying, we're going to make a new life for you. We're going to come find you an apartment and get you a job and get your kids into school. Um, It must be, it's not it must be, it is overwhelming for them. It was incredibly overwhelming for her. And then that plays out um, literally thousands of times. And have you met, how many, have you met, I'm assuming that you've met
1: some of the kids who were in the detention centers and have left. What are they going through now how is, is it a are they able to transition back to i'm sure that there's ma- massive trust issues with their families and things like when that. when we
2: were down there i think it was the head of the american academy of pediatrics was down there with us and she was saying that you know these kids are going to be traumatized for life especially the younger kids and so between these two i'm telling you about franklin and byron franklin the 11 year old was kind of more jovial yeah. playing soccer and stuff we were hanging out at the catholic charity center in kingston and byron the seven-year-old had a much um, blanker look, you know, kind of on his face and was much more timid. And the mother, Maria Gloria was saying, they just don't want to be apart. I don't want to be apart from them and they don't want to be apart from us. And so again, you and I, before we started talking today, we're talking about kids and dropping our kids off at school and how traumatizing, you know, that could be for little kids. We're talking about kids that were taken without explanation from their parents for a month and a half, two months. Some of them are still locked up today and they have to try to intellectualize as, Seven year olds, six year olds, you know, all the way up to 17 year olds, but as low as a, a, a baby toddler. infant, toddler, why their parents decided to either get separated from them or in 410 cases, still ongoing today, why their parents left the country, left them in the United States and left without them and try to figure out what that means to them. What do you
1: think? um, w- One of the things that has been kind of difficult for me with the Trump administration is that. Um, it appears that there will never be any negative repercussions for the actions of these people, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, uh, John Kelly, Kristen Nielsen, that have, have caused so much harm to so many people. Do you think that you know in, in five years or 10 years or whatever it is that there will be kind of a, a reckoning for these people or is it they just got away with the unimaginable?
2: I don't know. You know, I really I I don't know. And um, what I'm eager to find out is what happens in November and what happens um, if Donald Trump makes it all the way to the to the November of 2020. There's been nothing that I've reported on ever in my life or my career that has affected so many people in so many different walks of life in so many different ways than this story has. Um, I don't know that people, you know, I guess the first question is, will people walk in to vote? If people vote, um, thinking about this um, and just my gut says they will. Um, but how do you, you know, after four years ago or, or two years ago, you know, now at this point, how do we know? I don't know. When you think about the stories that you've done over the past couple of years
1: in this kind of immigration policy, immigration debate stuff. What are some
2: of the things that kind of stick with you, the things that you think about the most? What stories? Well, it's it's always the gap between perception and reality. You know, um, More undocumented people um, <laughs> come to this country by airplane at this point and overstay their visas from Asia than cross the southern border. And I laugh because it's just ridiculous, right? It's like the whole policy is about the wall, yet more people are... Co- so I've hung out with um, some... Uh, actually a kid in Harvard, um, who's, uh, I guess he's here on a student visa, if I remember correctly. And then, um, some Filipino workers here in Los Angeles, the same deal, undocumented, overstayed their visas. And they were, I mean, they almost laugh about it too. It's like the way that they talk about immigration policy is about, we need a wall on the Southern border. It's just not, it's actually not the reality of who's coming into the country illegally at this point. Um, it's stories like that. Um, it's stories about the drugs. It's stories. About, I mean, he talks about. The, I've reported a lot on the opioid crisis. Him talking about a wall as a solution for an opioid crisis is ludicrous. It's just insane. It's a ludicrous. Most 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 opioids are bought over the fucking internet
1: now. It's from like, China. They come from yeah, China. Yeah, fentanyl. And they come and, through yeah.
2: the mail. I've seen them. Like when I've gone to the processing centers I've with been, the postal I've service. been there too. And, exactly. And it's like, uh, and does and he the, not? The craziest know?
1: The craziest thing is. There's there's no technology to detect it. They literally just look at the package to
2: see if they think their. Oh, gut I've tells worn the mask. Standing next yeah. to them, they say yeah. you got to stand back, put the mask on, um, because you could die if you inhale it. I mean, that's how yeah. potent the stuff is. But Donald Trump thinks you need a wall to stop stuff coming from in, in airplanes and packages from, uh, from China. Evidently, it's, it's it's really bad. I mean, that's where I'm my I'd like to focus I like to focus my reporting is that the facts on the ground when the facts on the ground are different from the perception and the way that we hear about them and frankly we talk about them on TV you know uh, so often we talk about stuff and don't really go there and um, and to me on this immigration issue but on all kinds of stuff I mean that's the big gap why by the way why Americans don't trust the mainstream media why trust the, the media is is uh, why his fake news stuff you know, is damaging is because people don't trust us to begin with um and so how do we regain the trust and i think we go to where the people are well so one,
1: i was going to get to the media question and actually i will i want to ask one one of the immigration question before we get to the to the media stuff um when you one of the things i've always found interesting as a reporter you know speaking to my colleagues at the new york times when i was there and Vanity fair and, and just people i know that that work on these different beats and and you, the, the, the fascinating stuff is, the, is not the things you see and read about, but the things that happen in between. Um, what it, tell, Can you walk us through what it's like being – you go into these detention centers, you go to McAllen, you you see the the processing centers and so on. Do you all come out afterwards and you're like, well, that was messed up? Or is it just kind of like you're in shock for a little bit? Like what do you do when you go to sleep that night? Like what's the – No, I'm telling you. It, the
2: So after – Brownsville, the first time in that Walmart, you know, you I kind of came out and then just kind of regurgitated everything I saw to Chris Hayes. Right at that, I came out at like six thirty and I went on with him at eight o'clock, um, and everything kind of came out in real time. And I actually found that to be, as a journalist, but also as a human, kind of help really helpful to me because Chris asked all the right questions. You want to talk with somebody about it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's like therapy in front of millions. It of people. It really was. It really was. It was, it, and Chris. Chris asked all the right questions because he knows this issue so well. Um, And we kind of went through it in real time. Actually, I remember that this question that all of us were asking um, after that day, where are the girls and where are the toddlers, we kind of came to it on the air while we were talking about, I was like, you know, and there are boys that are 10 to 17 and there's 1,500 of them in there. And, And then I think I said in real time on the air, like, which begs the question, something like this: Where are the girls and where are the toddlers, or where if that's if that's who's here? Where's everybody else? And it just in talking about it with him, um, it sort of helped me turn the page onto like what we needed to focus on next. The one that was really hard was was the processing station in McAllen, and I still think about it all the time. Um, not as much, you know, but like I said earlier, it's like I dreamt about it for the first time ever last night, and. You know, I'm not asking for any sympathy. Uh, These kids are the ones that need the sympathy. It's just, I want to keep talking about it. Like, talking about it with you, I feel like, is healthy and helpful because we can't forget, you know? Do you come home
1: from these trips and, and, you know, like, grab your kid in a different way that you would have before?
2: Or, like... Yeah, definitely. I had a moment. um, It happens in weird places. I told this story to somebody else. uh, But I was, like, working out in New York one time after... I was down in Texas for two weeks straight and I went back up to New York and I think I like, you know, like been like start bawling, but I'm like, had kind of an emotional, whatever, took a hit, you know? And all of a sudden you just say, holy shit, man, like, it's just crazy that I'm now back to my normal life and all this stuff continues to go on. Yeah. And same thing when you look at your, when I look at my son or hanging out with my wife and my son or go back and forth between telling these stories all the time flying around, it's just, um, it's heavy, but it should be heavy. And like what actually I'm just trying to like communicate is like the feelings that I sometimes now go through are the feelings that I hope that everybody else can continue to go through until in this instance, all these kids are back with their parents, you know, 572 kids is a lot of fucking kids.
1: Did you did you ever see any of the kids actually being physically separated at the border when you guys were down there doing stories?
2: No, I did not see the separations, but that processing center in McAllen was is the place was the place rather. And this
1: is these kids have literally just been torn from their parents.
2: Yeah, and what's weird, what's really weird about it, what was really eerie about it is that it's a pretty chatty place. There's a whole section of um, of uh, like uh, adult males that are, you know, hooting and hollering. It feels like being in, like I said, like a jail or a prison in that place too. Like they're yelling at you as you're walking by and the mothers, there's like a, pods, mothers with children, fathers with children and then unaccompanied young boys and unaccompanied young girls. But the unaccompanied ones were getting younger and younger because they were being separated and those two pods were like silent. It was like, it's supposed to be play areas, recreation areas for the kids. And are the kids just sitting there? Not talking. I mean, maybe some of them running around. I think I remember one of them kicking a ball or something like that. Um, but we're inside, you know, in, in cages. Um, uh, and it, that's the whole deal. It was just, that was the eerie part. Because they, I don't know when they'd been separated, but it couldn't have been long before. Uh, I mean, it couldn't have been long before because I think they can only keep them in that facility for up to 72 hours. They were keeping – some of my colleagues reported they were keeping people for longer than that. But these are kids that were freshly separated from their parents. And parents, on the way out the door, many of whom likely I did see were just separated from their children. And that's that tear sheet I was talking about. They were given a piece of paper at that point and essentially said – Press one for English, two for Spanish, and you can figure out where your kids are.
1: Well, you couldn't actually really
2: figure out where your nope. kids were. Nope. And there was never there was never a plan to figure that out, That's right? the other thing. I'm glad you brought that up. It's like never was a plan, and there still isn't a plan to put the kids back together. The only reason that the first chunk of those kids have been put back together, uh, 1,800, and the, uh, 1,800 with parents or with a family member or sponsor, and then 1,400 specifically with the parents, is because the judge ordered it. Um, and you, I guess the administration could have been held in contempt of court had they not done it. So they brought in a guy, Commander Jonathan White, from um, HHS, the division that normally deals with natural disasters, in order to put into place basically a crisis plan to go find these kids. There never was a plan to put them back together because it wasn't thought through. Like I said, it was a political policy designed to scare the shit out of people. So is it true from the reporting that you've done that it was Stephen Miller's
1: brilliant idea to do this? or
2: I don't know. You know, that's I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I suspect— Um, but I I don't know, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't talked to him. I haven't talked to the president. The only person I've really talked to at an extremely high level about this is the secretary of Homeland Security. Um, and they all just say the same thing, you know, it's about keeping people out of the country.
1: And do you think that she believes that?
2: How can you as a mother?
1: Well, that's the part, that's the part I can't comprehend. Yeah. How can you go home? And, I mean, I cried reading articles about this stuff. I, I I, mean, I literally, was I couldn't work. I remember that week, I couldn't get anything done. I, was, I couldn't stop thinking about these poor fucking kids and these parents and what they must have been going through. How can she, as the person who is actually pulling the trigger, go home to see
2: her kids at night and just sit there and, like, eat a TV dinner and watch, you know, Netflix? I, it will be a disgraceful chapter in American history. And her name and the president's name and Stephen Miller's name you know, and the chief of staff's name, it all will be um, closely associated in the history books. You know, we separated, it it goes down with Japanese American internment camps and separating Native American children from their families and placing them with white families or turning around the St. Louis and sending it back to Europe, you know, and a couple hundred of those people, more than a couple hundred, ended up dying in In the the Holocaust, Holocaust. you know. I mean, I, I literally think that once we get some space from this, the mentally traumatizing 2551 children in an irreparable way will be one of the darkest chapters in American government history
1: on immigration yeah especially
2: yeah. On, on domestic soil yeah
1: all right so moving on to the to the to the media stuff um before we wrap up wh- when you look at the coverage of this issue and the coverage of the Trump administration and the re- Trump administration's of course attacks on the media do you think that the media has any responsibility and, and uh, is it fault in any way? Or do you think that, uh, that it's more the Trump administration?
2: You know, the one thing I don't, um, first of all, it's nuts. The way that he talks about the yeah, media it's, is it's nuts, insane, right? Like that's the baseline. It, yeah. it is just insane and ridiculous and, uh, dangerous, right? Yeah. I do think somebody's going to get hurt. We have seen people get hurt. Yeah. Um, but I sort of choose, I don't engage with it. Like on social media, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, do you? I mean, I don't. No, I don't,
1: I don't actually use social media that much anymore. I'm kind of, I just think it's, It's. I think that I uh, it's it, become a, um, a, a born part of our country and the communication, it's just a diabolical communication level. Because you platform. feed
2: into this just epic it's not a conversation. cycle of nothing. And yeah, that's like, it's like, why? I have no interest in arguing with the president of the United States on my social media. I don't even
1: re- look at his tweets anymore, honestly. And I, I
2: mean, look, I think it's bold what guys like Jim Acosta are doing and get up and walking yeah. out of the uh, the briefing room and stuff. I always feel anxious about making it about us when people look to us to learn about themselves. Well, I guess my, my question is, is
1: do you think that the, the media is it fault in any way uh, or is it just that, I mean, like I look at
2: the, a little bit. Yeah, I I I, I think so. A little bit. Yeah, I do. Because, you know, like I said, I covered the 2016 campaign a lot and I, I was out there maybe as much as anybody just talking to voters, you know, it was my only job. There were five of us at MSNBC who they, you know, put this like road warriors. What kind of voters was it? Everybody, right? Everybody. So Casey hunt and, um, Uh, Kristen Welker did the Democrats and Hallie Jackson and Katie Turd did the Republicans. And I just did the voters, you know, and it was that group of five and, um, with, with many other colleagues as well, by the way. And, uh, and I talked to folks all day long and they, a lot of times people were just surprised to see us show up when in random places, the kind of places that we would show up. And why is it, why is that the case? It shouldn't be that way, you know. You don't want people to think, "Why are you showing up here? Is it to make fun of me or mock what we're doing, um, how we live our lives, um, wherever we were?" And why can't we be at a place where it's normal for journalists to come and visit people and want to understand who they are and share their share their stories? People don't trust us because um, because everybody thought that um, people thought it was crazy that. Uh, alienated people supported Donald Trump you know and actually I feel kind of privileged or whatever to have been out with many of those people that I did have a deeper understanding of why people decided to vote for him um, but I would resent it too you know If you, hey if the message from a journalist is hey why do you support this guy when here's X, Y, and Z that make it s- that you shouldn't support him I would kind of say what's fuck you man yeah like I live my life you don't live my life and yeah. I'm going to make up my own mind. And I, that's the other thing. On social media, people are always coming after me saying, why don't you tell that voter that, this, that X, Y, and Z is the reason that they're wrong? Is it because I'm here to tell you why they think what they think? So you, you've actually—it's
1: interesting you bring up social media. You—one you, of the—when I first saw you at the border, yeah. it was on Periscope or uh, on, on Twitter, and— um And it's funny because I hadn't seen you in a couple of years. Last time was when you were doing a totally random different thing, and I was a guest on your show. And 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 I was like, "Whoa, Jacob's on the border. What's going on down there?" And then I watched, and I was like, "Holy shit! Like this is insane." And and I remember following, looking like in. I remember going to your literally Twitter page to see what updates there were because it was happening. And so like as much as I vehemently fucking despise social media these days, it also gave the opportunity to to, to see it in real time.
2: I will say that that, I think what you're referring to is I did this Twitter thread. I started it before I went into that facility in Brownsville and then I Mm -hmm. came out. We couldn't bring our phones in to take pictures. That's the other thing we haven't talked about, by the way. They didn't allow us any access for photos or video in any of these facilities, you know, so we had to rely on the government handout stuff. But so I went in and by the time I came out, I just said I'm going into this facility. By the time I came out... That tweet had already been retweeted, I don't know, like, I don't know, a couple thousand times. By the end of that thread, it was like 45,000 retweets on the one thread. I had never had anything on social media that had blown up. Uh, to that degree and it's, it's not some kind of social media record but for for interest in that kind of story yeah and the ability to share that kind of information was was huge and I think that that's sort of in that instance the way that you tuned in a lot of people that I know that I guarantee you don't follow the work that I do friends of mine were like that's how I first found out about this was that that Twitter thread
1: when you uh, when now but so now when you use social media you're not engaging with these people right you're just tweeting and you I try not you-
2: to I mean people say truly stupid stuff um, and like, will accuse me of something. Hey, the one I got a lot was like, Hey, why weren't you talking about this during the Obama administration? And, you know, I'll tweet back a couple links to some of the stories that I mentioned at the beginning of our chat. Like, here's some stuff from 2014 when I talked about how the Obama administration deported more people than anywhere else. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. It's not, I don't get an argument with somebody have no interest because, um, arguments aren't based in facts these days. Yeah. <laughs> not much is based in facts. These yeah.
1: Days. Um, all right. So, so wrapping up here, if, um, where do you think that this is going to play out? Trump wants his border wall, right? Uh,
2: he says, you, he, by the way, he says, another fact that is incorrect, he says it's already under construction. It's not. No, it, it's not. It's reconstructing, reconstructed portions of existing wall, um, and none of it looks like the border wall he wants it to look like. But you'll hear him, I guarantee you, say, after you hear me say this, say again, oh, it's already under construction. Um,
1: where do you think that— this, how do you think this plays out, the, the border wall, the immigration policies? Um, do you think that they're going to do another uh, Stephen Miller-esque
2: villainous? There'll be some stuff coming down the pipe, um, and you know you should follow is Julia Ainsley, my colleague, who I've been reporting on this um, a, a basically throughout the entire process because she's, she's got some stuff coming um, soon. Um, about sort of what's the, what the next phase is. And it goes beyond the children and it goes beyond the groups of immigrants that have been historically targeted. And I think they'll roll some stuff out in advance of the midterms, um, to, uh, to go after a whole new group. Cause again, they think it's politically advantageous. So that's, that's sort of the one track, like who else gets targeted. Um, the other one is what happens to the remaining children. And at this point, the answer, the answer is really, we don't know, um, the ACLU has done just it just a, it's pretty extraordinary, this lawsuit. And I went down to the court in San Diego the other day. I mean, they're battling over every kid, you know? Wow. Um, and so the question is, what happens to those remaining kids? We'll have a new number, I think, coming up towards the end of this week, but 572 for now.
1: Uh, last question. The question that I actually wondered a lot during this period of time, and I'm sure you get asked a lot, is uh, what can people do to help? I mean, that's the, you know, it's... The the thing that I've discovered uh, was you know calling your senator, calling your congressman actually has a huge fucking impact. Yeah, it like, does. I was in uh, I was I was in D.C. when this was going on, and I was had a couple of meetings with some senators on another topic, and
2: and their phones were ringing, and it's and they were saying this it, it works. Like I'm so, in- I said to Ari Melbourne on he was filling in for Rachel on Friday night, and I was on here in L.A. He was out here, and I, oh, he was saying to me you know, what do you think about the court's role in the process of reuniting these kids? Pretty amazing, right? And I said, yeah, but not only that, it is so um, inspiring, actually, having been down there and had my own personal journey through all this, to see how much people gave a shit and how much of an impact people actually had. I guarantee that without, and the ACLU says this too, without... The, the, the critical mass of public support, there would have been 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 kids separated um, rather than 2,551. And so w- number one is what you said, just call your elected officials, um, show up at these marches and these rallies if that's what you care about, right? Um, and then the other one, the, the most extraordinary story is um, RISIS, the, the nonprofit down there that deals in South Texas with immigrant rights. They raised, I think it was the biggest fundraiser in Facebook history. They asked for, I don't even know, five, ten, thousand dollars, and raised over twenty million dollars at this point to help these families um, get back together and uh, to provide money for their legal defense. So that's sort of the one group. There's all kinds of groups down there. Texas Civil Rights Project, you know, ACLU is leading the lawsuit, but um, it's that what's happened with that group is really extraordinary.
1: Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people follow you on the internet if they really want to use social media oh, just and ruin day? Me. It's not worth your time for me to say all those links. Uh, all right. Thanks so much. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Nick. Yep.
2: This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
1: I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't sleep very well at night because I know I don't after I interview the people I speak to. So if that's the case, you probably need a new mattress. And the folks at Mattress Firm are ready to help you. Mattress Firm is here when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep no matter what is going on. The people who work there are mattress experts. They are legitimately mattress experts. They know how to help you build a bed, headboards, adjustable bases, sheets. They can even help you with your bedroom decor. And what they're going to do for you today is they're going to offer you 10% off for listening to this podcast and getting a new mattress. All you need to do is go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, and you'll get 10% off when you type in the code podcast10. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-1-0. If you don't think that this is going to help you, Mattress Firm will give you a 120-night sleep trial so you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress. You'll actually start sleeping. You'll probably have to stop listening to this podcast. Probably not a very good idea. But anyway, and they also offer you a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know that you paid the perfect price. If you don't want to go on the internet and you want to go to a Mattress Firm store, all you need to do is look them up on the internet. There are 3,000 stores nationwide, and you can get your 10% savings in cash in person. So go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, enter the code podcast10, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0, and you will get 10% off, and you'll start sleeping better. I know I am. Welcome back to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton and the one, the only... The John Kelly that doesn't work in the White House, John,
0: not quite the one and only, um, but uh, but here I am anyway. I was the only John yeah. Kelly available to be booked on Inside the Hive this week. Yeah, I was. Uh,
1: your bookers were really annoying, but it's it's okay. We we forgive you. Uh, well, that was a crazy fucking interview, if I may say so myself. Yeah, you know, Nick, Jacob. that's funny.
0: It, it, that was uh, fascinating to me. Do you really think that there are knuckleheads uh, or numbskulls inside the White House who really think that that um, the Democrats would have somehow supported a, a, a plan for the wall, it, even, even in, in the, the fantasia that was the early months when Chuck Schumer was looking for some sort of uh, large-scale infrastructure deal?
1: Look, I think Jacob is incredibly well-sourced. This is his beat. It is the border. It is immigration, you know, before any of this stuff happened, he was sitting down with the heads of DHS and folks in the White House and talking to, you know, people all over the, the country that work in this arena. And so I do think that his sourcing is completely correct and that that makes total sense. It's also unbelievably disgusting and terrifying that they would have gone to those lengths to, uh, to, to push for this wall. Thank God, something crawled into someone's head and, and changed all that. The question is, there was, you know, I I still viscerally feel just awful about that those couple of weeks when this all took place, not so long ago, a month ago, or so ago. And and I don't know. I just I don't know how much longer people would have put up with it. Um, it was almost like they couldn't put up with it for as long as it lasted in itself. Uh, it would have consumed everything. Uh, and it wouldn't have gone away. And so I don't actually know if the White House, you know, if they believe that they would have actually got their border wall from that, like they might need their heads examining more um, uh, than they. But but that being said, you know, like I have I wouldn't say I've read the art of the deal. I've skimmed it. And the art of the deal is, you know, push someone in a place that they don't want to be in and then give them an opportunity to get out. It's be a, be an asshole and then be a good guy. Uh, and it has worked. It's worked for Trump in many, many, many instances. Uh, it is not something that he came up with. It's something that you know salespeople have done forever. Um, and so maybe he would have gotten something that, that he didn't get. I don't know. What's more terrifying, I think, is you know what Jacob was saying, is that they have other things planned that they're going to do that could even be worse than what they did. I, I just can't imagine how, how anything could be worse than tearing toddlers and children away from
0: their parents. Well, one thing that's interesting to me is um, whether there will be this sort of like – Post-factual, counterfactual, um, remorseful era of, uh, of of Trump appointees who, um, you know, and administration officials who, after the fact, do sort of, not, if not attempt to rewrite history, uh, try and apply some sort of um, uh, logic on on what they got wrong. Now, normally, um, any sane or humane uh, administration officials would say, you know what, I regret. <laughs> I regret yeah. those executive orders because they were borderline criminal and un-American. Not, I regret them because we could have gotten the Democrats to pay for the wall. But, but you, yeah. you you do wonder, like, you know, in in five years or ten years, it normally would take a lot longer. But, but things move so fast this day and age. Uh, if you got previously sane people or once sane people or vaguely sane people like Kellyanne Conway, um, maybe she's not the best example, or, or Mike Pence to sit down and really reckon with with, um, what they stood by, or Dina Powell is probably the best example, um, uh, would they say, holy shit, we were just like captured by aliens and meant to do things against our will with with guns to our heads? Or or would they say, oh, you know what, we we should have done the crazy shit we wanted to do, and we should have done it in such a way that it it also nuked our opposition party. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think that the the reality is, um, if you look through history, uh, there are Democrats and Republicans that have done really, really bad things uh, and have figured out ways to justify them. And I think he said this publicly before Kissinger says along these lines, like that they asked if he regrets, you know, sending people to die at war, and he, you know, Kissinger said um, uh, that he had you know you even if you do you can't say that publicly because people sent their kids to die in war you you come up with justifications i think to 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 justify what what you've done and why you've done it and and so on and i think that um you know i've i've spoken to other people who have worked in the white house in the obama white house where they've done drone attacks and they've told me you know well we had to do it because we killed X person, but we, and yeah, sure, a dozen families were killed too, but it was, it, we, that was the choice we had to make. And, and so I think that if you come, if you look at anyone through history, whether they're on the right side of it or the wrong side of it, and the things that have gone wrong, they do have ways of justifying it. And I'm sure that people within the Trump administration will do that too, uh, if not already. You know, look at, um, Uh, you know, Spicer, uh, who is out there, you know, doing a book tour and and talking to people. There are people that yell at him on the street and on the news and in Barnes & Noble in New York City. And, you know, he doesn't seem too perturbed by it. Uh, He keeps going out there, keeps pushing his name out there. So, um, sadly, I don't think that they will will suffer the repercussions. But maybe I'm wrong and hopefully I am.
0: Well, yeah, maybe they won't suffer in in, in some ways. But I think that uh, someone like Spicer is a... um a good example of how you can be sort of professionally neutered after an experience like this. Uh, I, I have to believe that Spicer took the job, um, because, and I've heard this from people who are sort of familiar with the logic that went into the decision that he thought that there would be real opportunity that came out of it on both on the, the paid speaking tour within books and, and also just within, um, uh, potential lobbying gigs or, or, um, it, it, you know the, the sort of uh, paid influence that occurs in Washington, and it's been a lot harder for him to get into that. So there is, um... yeah. I mean,
1: I, 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 was, I have the same speakers bureau as Cory Lewandowski, and, um, and you know, he was pushed out, but, uh, um, of the bureau. But he, you know, he wasn't. I didn't see him out there a lot. You know, on the on the road or anything. I, I can't imagine that. Uh, um, y- you know, even if you work for a company that is in the middle of you know the dc and pro pro republican and whatever you're still you still don't want to invite a guy like that uh to come do a talk at your corporate event and um uh i think that uh, it's you know all of these people are going to find themselves in the same boat you know all hoping that here's what i do think will happen i my from the reporting that i have done and from the reporting at folks like gabe sherman and others in in our organization and elsewhere have done you know there's a there is still a feeling that Trump will, will will get out of this and start Trump TV. Um, he's more obsessed with the media than he is with being president, and uh, and maybe these guys will all get their own TV show, like kind of like NRA TV, where you got Dana Loesch and this person and that person with their own show, and maybe that's the maybe that's where it all comes back together for them. But but who knows? I don't know. They, yeah. they it'll I'm sure it'll play itself out in the next uh, uh, two to six years.
0: Yeah, no, we'll see. Um- but since we can't tell the future, Nick, let's turn to the present. I have a couple of questions for you, um, mm. uh, for the, emanating out of out of uh, a, a, a little uh, 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 peninsula, um, Silicon Valley. Things that have come across my mind this week. It, it's been an actually sort of uh, largely uh, news generating week for for mid August, which you don't always expect. Um, you had a super story out uh, just the other day about what is going on in Jack Dorsey's brain. Um, Twitter, of course, is the the last significant social media platform to tolerate Alex Jones. Um, they, they gave him a slap on the wrist um, and said, you know what, take a week off, think about it, but we can't get rid of you because you haven't broken any rules. Of course, it turns out that he had. Um, so my question is pretty simple here. It's a multi-part question. Why are they doing this? It's so stupid. And also, it, are they doing it because of some sort of uh, fracture in the administration within Twitter between – uh, Dorsey and, and Del Harvey, who's a, 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 a early Twitterite and, and someone who runs, uh, uh, the, the public safety, uh, part of the organization.
1: Well, so I, I don't think that it is a, um, I don't think there's a fracture within the organization that is a severe one. That's, you know, where Del and, and Jack are yelling at each other in the hallway about, you know, uh, or by the candy bar with the chocolate covered malted, they have amazing chocolate covered malted Things there at Twitter, I gotta say, (laughs) Um, but uh, I don't think that they're yelling each other, you know, about this. I think that it's kind of it's it's I think that they should be, um, you know, there should be these heated discussions. But I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that lower level employees that I've spoken to and a lot of former employees that still still speak to their colleagues are are pissed at the upper management they think that the decision that was made uh was embarrassing was was wrong you know i mean the fact that you know one person said you know the fact that that dorsey went on sean hannity afterwards to kind of talk about his reasoning for not you know getting rid of alex jones what dorsey should have done is gone uh on a plane to sandy hook connecticut and explained to the families that have been harassed after losing their five and six-year-old children why he made that decision um And I think that it's just a lot of people are pretty disappointed, including people at the highest level of the company that I that I've spoken with. And I think that um, so that's the first aspect of this. I, I the larger thing is, you know. The the problem with Dorsey in many respects is the same problem with Trump is that you can't kind of figure the guy out really you know there are times he does things that you're like oh okay that makes sense and there are times he does things where you're like wait I thought you were the guy that did this other thing um, you know they fired uh, they fired they 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 kicked off Milo Yiannopoulos they've they've gotten rid of other really bad people that use the platform for really bad things uh, I think Alex Jones is arguably way worse than Milo. Um, and yet he's he's still on there, and so the problem is uh it's again one of these things that that Twitter has always been kind of this rudderless boat that that even when it's it, it is righted in the in the correct direction, someone lets go of the rudder and it goes back in another direction and or and as Mark Zuckerberg
0: kind of famously said it was a a clown car that fell into a ditch of of money or something it was the he, he there was a famous
1: meeting uh that I wrote about in Hatching Twitter in the book where. Uh, they uh, Zuckerberg was trying to buy the company at the time Dorsey wasn't even there he'd been fired and Evan Williams was running the company and they went down to uh, to to you know Mark's house in uh, Palo Alto and had this awkward meeting where there wasn't enough places to sit and uh, uh, there's lawyers in the room and Mark's you know it was the second time he tried to buy it and after he after they left uh, he he looked over at his his colleagues and friends and said you know it's like a A clown car that drove into a gold mine and fell in. Um, And uh, one of my favorite tweets ever was uh, Jason Goldman, who was actually, I think, at that meeting, uh, who later went to go work for the Obama White House, tweeted and said, at least it was a fun clown car or something along those lines. But it's true, though. It really is. I mean, this is a company that um, has always been kind of in a perpetual state of chaos no matter whether it's internally or externally and um and i think that what so what i have heard is that you know if if jack is not going to ban alex jones and i and and he he doesn't want to at this point because it's going to make him look bad yeah um, yeah, that's awful though that, Um,
0: that it's about optics at this point but yeah oh yeah
1: i know it's just disgusting but but um but if that is the case then i think what happens is um Jack has to solve the problem by um, by solving you know many problems uh, and so that's what you're seeing now he spoke to The Washington Post about rethinking had the whole engagement of Twitter and likes and retweets and replies and the things you see in your timeline and so I think that the, the what you'll see happen is there will be an about face but it, it will be one that will be done in uh, in a very kind of uh, uh, privately public way where uh, Jack doesn't look bad. The question that I have and that every single person I've spoken to has is, how long is Jack going to put up with Del Harvey uh, making one mistake after the other before he starts to make a change? And no one but Jack knows the answer to that.
0: Yeah, the the, the Del Harvey uh, uh, time bomb has been taken for a long time. Our colleague Maya Kosa did a, a, a really uh, titillating story about Del a couple months ago at this point, and um, she is... Uh, you know that sort of lightning rod, Silicon Valley executive who has um, uh, certainly uh, plenty of defenders, but boy, are there um, a lot of people who are frustrated with the job that she's done, and and who really view her fairly or not as the the person responsible for how the platform has been misused.
1: I mean, yeah, the per- the, the, the the craziest thing was with this Alex Jones stuff. They put out a, a release. Uh, that some jack tweets four four or five tweets saying that they're not going to ban him because he hasn't violated any of the rules and i think probably pretty quickly afterwards he realized that that may not be the case so he tweets a or maybe he didn't realize but so then he tweets a screenshot of or retweets dell who had sc- treated a screenshot of the reason why they hadn't banned alex jones and the rules and everything and then Dell runs a team of I, – I, last I heard it was around 70, 80 people, uh, not including freelancers and all these other – I mean there's a lot of people that are under her that she has control of that can you know, search Alex Jones' Twitter account pretty quickly. And yet you had Oliver Darcy over at, at CNN who spent a, a few minutes and quickly found a dozen instances where he very clearly had violated the terms of service in the same way that had justified YouTube and, and, and all these other platforms and Apple kicking him, kicking Alex Jones off. And so – one thing about Jack to understand is he's very aware of, of every little detail of optics. That's one of his like his specialties. Mm-hmm. He's really really good at it. And so it was interesting that he didn't put out, he didn't tweet a letter I just sent to the to the whole company uh about how why I decided not to push off Alex Jones. He tweeted Dell's and that is the one sign to me Ooh, that yeah. <laughs> that tells me that He knows it's her and that that that's a way of him being able to kind of throw her under the bus if he has to. But, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We will see. That is throwing somebody under the bus,
0: um, if I've ever seen it.
2: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Um, Nick, let's move on to a new topic. Number two, Uber released shockingly impressive... um, uh, Earnings um, for its second quarter, uh, I, you know, when we started The high, one thing I think we all agreed that we would never do is talk about quarterly earnings reports, which are um, are very boring. People who run companies hate them. Uh, they, they do it just to placate to investors. But this one seemed important because Derek Shahi was brought in to take the company public, and he raised revenue by like 60%, 60, more than 60%, and he, cut the, uh, he lowered the burn, which is something that um, – Investors in the media have been have been very um, uh, worried about, but you have a sort of nuanced take on the Uber growth plan. So, take it away. Well, look, I think
1: that what's interesting to me is I remember when I first saw Uber, and it was it was very very early days, like weeks into this platform launching, and I would only learned about it because of a friend um, who uh, who knew Travis and. Uh, and all the folks that had started it and Garrett Camp, who had had financed it and so on. And he, um, I remember I just moved to San Francisco, I think, and I didn't have a car yet. and And I was trying to, I was saying how difficult it is to get a cab. And he said, oh, just use Uber. And I was like, what the hell is Uber? And he showed me and I, and it was at the time, it was only black cars. And I remember having this moment, this realization back then of, wow, this is really fascinating because, what it does is when you hired a taxi before, you hired. You, you were essentially not hiring the taxi. You were paying for the dispatcher to connect you to the taxi. So when you called like 666 Carmel Cars, like you were paying that person to say, here's someone that's willing to drive you. Because if you were actually hiring the taxi, you would have gone over to your next door neighbor's house, knocked on their front door and say, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks to take me to the airport. and But maybe that neighbor wouldn't want to do it, but the neighbor next door would have. And so it would have taken you all this time that would have been a waste of time and money. And so what Uber did that was the genius of it was it created an app that got rid of the person, the dispatcher? And so, you're not when you when you call an Uber, you're what you're paying for is not the driver, but it's the connection to right. the driver. Cutting out the middleman. So now, if you, yeah, you're cutting out the middleman, which is genius. I mean, it is truly genius, and that it, it, that's happened with so many different things as a result of this Uber. It's the same with Airbnb, like flights, you name it. So what? The, but but everyone has known, uh, if, if you've paid any attention to Uber or to driverless cars or anything, that the future of Uber is a, is going to be eclipsed by itself by driverless cars. Because eventually what's going to happen when you have driverless cars, you won't need to be connected to the driver. You just need to be connected to the car. And in that instance, Uber becomes – why would you need Uber? You just need to talk directly to the car at this point. And so – the future of Uber is very much dependent on the future of driverless cars and it having access to them and the, and, and it owning the fleet because – it, while while it, there's no question that Uber has incredible data um, predictive and analytics that knows when people are going to start to call cars in certain areas based on patterns in the past and so on and so forth, like they know on a Friday night down on Third Street and, and, and Main Street uh, at around 10 o'clock, the bar closes and X number of people are going to call. They, 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 can, they can anticipate that. They can work that magic. However, if you're Elon Musk… And you own the driverless cars or you you own the software that runs driverless cars for your Teslas, you're not going to give it to Uber to, to be able to call someone because that means that you're going to lose revenue from that. And so I think that this week what happened is they got rid of their – they're, they're talking about getting rid of their driverless car unit, which to me seems – like shooting yourself in the foot for the future the only thing i can think of is they're saying okay you know what we're losing last year it was 1.1 billion they they were down uh this year it's projected to be 817 million um the only thing i can think of is they're they're saying look we need to we need to close the gap between how much money we're losing and revenue we're making and try to get towards profitability for the ipo next year and if that doesn't happen um if that does happen or whatever maybe the the goal is they get pub, they go public, they make a ton of money, and then they go and they buy a company that's a driverless car company and, and, and start from new. But that's a big gamble to make.
0: Is it also possible that um, that uh, that they could be bought too? That, that, that a, a company that um, that I mean, there aren't that many companies big enough to buy Uber, but but there are some that could see that technology or frankly just the data that Uber has is being massively valuable in five or ten years.
1: I can think of one called Amazon. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember was it last year the New Establishment Summit? Uh, there was the dinner, uh, and I led off the, uh our 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 last year New Establishment essay with the story. But there was this dinner where all the people involved in the New Establishment Vanity Fair Vanity Fair Summit uh, were at a dinner, and I was walking out of the dinner, and I saw uh, Travis, who was then Travis Kalanick, who was then CEO of Uber, and Jeff Bezos, who is still. CEO of Amazon, were having a conversation and laughing, and it was the first time they'd met. Um, and uh, and I remember thinking to myself as I walked by, oh, those two seem like they're buddies right now, but there's not a question in my mind that Amazon is going to enter the driverless vehicle space, whether it's cars or cargo or whatever, and, and these two are going to be at each other's throats. This is, of course, my theory all fell apart when Travis was was fired or forced to leave quite quickly afterwards and so on. But it doesn't break the theory that they will be. And so, you know, you could imagine right now – Amazon is trying to figure out ways to get things to you quicker uh, as quickly as possible and you can imagine whether it's your toilet paper or uh, or books or a new air conditioner whatever it is that eventually their Amazon is going to go into the space of trying to get people to pe- to places in the same speed uh, and so on and so you could totally imagine them acquiring uh, uber and for you know, Amazon's almost a trillion dollar company. It's not that big of a deal for them to buy a $70 million company or 100 million, whatever it's gonna be valued at in the future. And so that is a total possibility, and I think the other thing that is a possibility is um you know Amazon at the end of the day is a is a data company uh and uh it would be a huge data play for them to buy them uh Google could also come along you know Google's trying right. to map the world and and do the same thing so there's the, without question there's a world where where they're acquired um you know I would imagine that that would someone would try to do that before they go public but but who knows
0: yeah i'm I'm thinking more 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 five or ten years down the line if um if uh, if it turns out that the driverless space does have a clear winner, the way Uber won the ride sharing space, and um, and they realize that the, the, the you know that there's a merger in their future, but um, uh, one company that probably won't be doing that is Tesla. Let's talk about Elon Musk for a second. This um, this Goldman Sachs tweet and, and, and the two law firms he mentioned that would be that would be uh, litigating the the private sale of Tesla. It's just nuts, man. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, no, but it, 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 it's, it's crazy. It it's is. A lot it's of totally levels. insane. Um, uh, but um, here are the things that strike me as the as the most crazy. First of all, uh, it, it reminded me that um, that we tolerate a lot on social media, but not other things. Like we're we're willing to have our election facilitated by by Russians and trolls, but we're not willing to to have public market data. Um, uh, you know messed with in, in the public sphere and that seems like um uh, a sort of potential reprioritization that we might want to consider one day moving forward but just the the supreme arrogance of him to um to put together a hypothetical deal on social media and 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 act as though it was fact seemed like it's something that it wouldn't just bother journalists but would probably infuriate people who who trade for a living too what do you think
1: well, I actually know a few, a few, um, a few traders, a couple of whom have shorted Tesla, and I don't think I've ever seen them more livid in my life than, uh, than based on what happened when Musk did his little Twitter charade uh, last week and this week, talking about how he's going to, um, uh, just take the company private and this, that, and the other. There was a a great story in the Times this week with four bylines, um, Andrew Sorkin leading it, where they were talking about how, you know, everyone, the board, you name it, employees is scratching their head, wondering what the hell Elon's up to, uh, pissed off that he's still tweeting this stuff. Uh, The two banking companies that he had talked to, that he talked about that that were going to back him said there's no formal deal whatsoever um you know it'd be like me it would be like me tweeting uh that i i got i i'm going to be the editor-in-chief of of the new yorker and someone up and them saying yeah. thank you so much thank you very much i'm going to take it private when i buy yeah, it yeah. And when it's i it's already private uh the bankers are um bob brown banking down the street and uh yeah. and jen smith banking uh on the other block they're they're going to back the whole thing and it's like it would be like me doing that and you and 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 people writing about it as if a it may happen the 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 fanboys and then other people being like what the hell like you totally made that up and and i think that what's so sad is that you know is that he doesn't actually suffer any repercussions from these things he just does them um if this you know look martha stewart went to jail for much less uh and um and you know if if the rules and the laws did exist um, he should be going to jail too. I don't think that's going to happen because he's Elon Musk and walks on water. But, uh, but it was pretty. It was pretty messed up what he did. And uh, and I really do hope that there are some repercussions beyond just a financial thing for him.
0: Do Do you think that there, that um, his stand? I mean, his, certainly his standing as, as an entrepreneurial hero is 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 uh, is, is never going to uh, uh, subside. But I do wonder. Um, do you think that there's room in the public markets for for him uh moving forward if, if he's somebody who um the public markets are all about transparency and the, the the bond of trust between um uh you know consumer and investor and 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 executive and it it does seem like th- th- this sort of um level of bullshit is is could have a long-term uh stain uh It certainly would with anybody else in the world. I suppose the question is, is he Donald Trump or is he everyone else?
1: He's a little bit of both, honestly, I think. Uh, I think
0: that he's clearly,
1: he's clearly brilliant. I mean, you, you know, he taught himself how to be a essentially rocket scientist. He, um, he didn't start Tesla, but he came in at the right time and took over and, you know, it's been the face of it and. And, 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 you know, he, he's clearly been at the forefront of a lot of, he's very smart. He's very aware of what, of trends he wants to put a dent in the universe. But at the same time, I think that there's a side of him that is really just an asshole and doesn't play by the rules, doesn't care about the rules um, uh, is, you know, I've, I've heard personal stories about him that, that would, you know, make you gasp and, and there's also, of course, all the public stories about him um, in a, a business context that make people gasp every day. And um, you know, I, I think uh, I, it's interesting when I think back to to the beginning of this podcast series uh, over a year ago, and the second guest we had on was uh, Conan O'Brien. Uh, and w- what a ways we've gone! By the way, we've gone from Conan to just me and you sitting here bullshitting for four <laughs> Don't 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 <laughs> uh, say it out loud. Uh, so if anyone's still listening, congratulations! <laughs> send me a tweet. I'll send you a, an RX bar for free. Uh, um, but the, the, what's so fascinating is I remember Conan t- telling this story about about how he knew people that had been, um, you know, had been in have become famous and that they are like is this physiological thing that happens to them it's like an astronaut that's been in space for too long and they come down and they can't actually walk properly their muscles have like atrophied and, and all these different things and i think that it's so true and i remember was we talked about it we talked about famous people like michael jackson and so on and now talking about it today with you it's it's has it applies to people like elon musk and jack dorsey and mark zuckerberg and they it, it's a little different in that they're they're still living on Earth, but, but they are they don't see things the way the rest of the world sees them, and uh, it's pretty shocking because they have a lot of power in the things that they do, and uh, we're kind of stuck with the repercussions of their, their tweets and Facebook Well, Nick, updates. let's hope
0: that uh, we can all be so lucky one day, right? Just yes, kidding. Yes, just uh, kidding.
1: Uh, John, this has been fantastic, as always. Uh, I have no earthly idea who's on the podcast next week, but... But either way, it'll be me and you talking about nothing.
0: It was the pleasure of a lifetime, Nick. Thank you again for having me. Thanks. Thanks all.
1: Thanks to my guest today, Jacob Soboroff, and of course, John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with me, Nick Bilton. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. <gasps> Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair for being so amazing, and thank you, of course, most of all, without any doubt, to my fantastic sponsors, Rx Bar, Mattress Firm, and Vitamin Water. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will hear you or see you or whatever it is we do next week.
0: Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.